This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast about a little-known group of feminist activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership in relationships. I'm Dr Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University, where over the course of several years I decided to take a different look at how law came to be as we know it. In this podcast series, I explore the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I'll be going back in history to uncover how this group's failed attempts at reform created unexpected ripples that connect to fundamental principles of equality today. This is episode six. I want to start this episode with a letter sent to the Married Women's Association by one of their members. I have been a loyal mother and hard-working wife, having brought three healthy children into the world. And I think that when a woman is a wife and a mother in a home such as mine, there should be a law compelling the husband to share some part of his earnings with her. Life would be so different for me if only I had a fraction of the allowance my husband spends on himself. If a woman had an allowance for herself, the family would gain by it and she would be able to save for her old age or a rainy day. It's a crying shame that a man, by marrying, attains the services and life help made for nothing. She must accept clothing and even her medical care as a special favour to be thankful for and not as having any right to them in exchange for her work. Throughout this podcast series, I've explored numerous stories of women let down by the law, just like the woman who wrote this letter. And although the Married Women's Association wanted radical reform, they weren't making much progress. In this sixth episode, I'll explore how they changed tack and attempted more piecemeal reform, a step-by-step approach. This was suggested by the association's vice president, Teresa Billington-Gregg, who said... Reform movements are like builders. They set out to erect structures in which human beings can live better lives, but there are few of them which can begin their own constructive work at once because of the state of the site on which they have to build. This was the position which faced the Married Women's Association. The ground was littered with obstructions of sentiment, ignorance and prejudice. And the little starting group had neither the tools nor the training to tackle the job entirely by itself. Our first successful legislative venture is the beginning of building. Step by step, steady progress can be hoped for if we persevere. In the previous episode, I explored how the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce recommended reforming the issue that affected Mrs Blackwell in episode four which was the issue of housekeeping savings. Dorothy Blackwell tried to support herself after separating from her husband with savings in the co-op, only to have this money taken from her by her husband when the court declared it entirely belonged to him. Dorothy Blackwell tried to support herself after separating from her husband with savings in the co-op, only to have this money taken from her by her husband when the court declared it entirely belonged to him because it was housekeeping money that he'd provided. As well as the Married Women's Association's campaign, the Royal Commission's report in 1956 undoubtedly led to more widespread public consciousness of the plight of married women like Dorothy Blackwell. But by the early 1960s, 
this still had not translated into legislative reform. And so Ada Summerskill, the Married Women's Association's first president and by now a life peer in the House of Lords, made another attempt to reform the issue. She drafted one of the shortest bills in history, titled the Married Woman Savings Bill. It consisted of 25 words. If a wife makes savings out of what her husband gives her for housekeeping, half of any money so saved shall belong to her absolutely. Yet even with additional support, the centres of summer skills reform efforts adopted a familiar theme during the debate of this bill, and that was husband's stomachs. In the Blackwell case in 1943, which we explored in episode four, the Court of Appeal Judge Lord Justice Goddard expressed concern that wives who were allowed to save housekeeping allowance would cook bad quality meals. Now, Lord Boothby was echoing these sentiments. He argued that although the husband might not be starved, he would be badly fed if the housewife were encouraged to save out of housekeeping in order to have that little bit extra in their pocket. He almost comically explained, If this was confined to herrings, I should not mind, but the temptation to feed the husband on lentils or chips or some ghastly concoctions which can be obtained for 6D in a tin and turned out no trouble at all and not to go to the market and buy good, fresh, solid meat and then to collar half of what is left will, in my view, be very great. In her abrupt style, Ada Summerskill's retort was to remind Boothby that his obsession with food was maybe ill-advised given his doctors had advised him not to eat so much. Married Women's Savings Bill couldn't progress further because the parliamentary session had run out of time. But before reintroducing the bill in the new session of Parliament, Summerskill had it redrafted as the Married Women's Property Bill 1964, and that was to incorporate the language of the Royal Commission's report, so that housekeeping money would belong to the husband and wife in equal shares. This time, with government support, the bill passed successfully through the House of Lords and was moved by Douglas Houghton in the House of Commons. Procedurally, private members' bills only need one member of the House to obstruct them. The first time the Married Woman's Property Bill was called, it was defeated by a single, anonymous objector. And so, the following week, Ada Summerskill described bracing herself, Waiting for the fatal word, like some poor unfortunate creature waiting for the executioner's axe with an iron determination not to wince when the blow fell. But no one objected, and the bill was passed. Summerskill was successful in introducing reform that would enable married women to save in their own right. This was seen by some as important at the time, because it would ensure that the status of wives is not a hollow mockery, as it was in the days of the unfortunate Mrs Blackwell, who, for all her status proved to be far worse off than if she'd been a paid housekeeper. Though Married Women's Association members didn't view the Married Women's Property Act 1964 as a panacea for married women's equality, they still considered the act a major triumph and they felt the work and aims of the association had reached a milestone. As they saw it, the door leading to the economic rights of a wife during marriage had been opened. Decades after the Blackwell and Blackwell case, married women had a legal right to a half share of housekeeping money in recognition of the fact that that money had been generated, usually through the wife's own efforts anyway. For the Married Women's Association, it was especially significant 
because the Married Women's Property Act 1964 reformed property ownership during marriage. And so the members saw this as a culmination of their efforts. For more than 25 years, we have addressed meetings and passed resolutions, sent letters continuously to the Ministers of the Crown, Members of Parliament and to the House of Lords. We have begged and beseeched to draw attention to, to urge and to demand a change in the marriage property law. And this year we witnessed the first amendment to ancient law on the economic rights of a wife during marriage. So taking stock then, of course this was significant because they had been tirelessly campaigning on this issue for more than 25 years. But the members of the association were clear that the Act represented only slight progress within the broader context of their aims. The amount of money wives could acquire under the Act would likely have been very little, and married women would get nothing if no housekeeping allowance were paid to them in the first place. Nevertheless, the Act was important because it had established a principle based on equality. As a result, it would be short-sighted only to criticise the Married Women's Property Act 1964 for being piecemeal, for being an ad hoc piece of legislation and for not doing enough to address the financial position of married women, even though all of these things were true. And that's because the strategy for reform adopted by the Married Women's Association was necessarily incremental because their prospects of broader reform at that time were unrealistic. Soon after the Married Women's Property Act 1964 came into effect, the Married Women's Association became aware of Lily Ince's imprisonment. Lily Ince had been in prison for six months for failing to give her husband a share of the housekeeping savings. But she contended this money was her money, not money derived from an allowance. Because Blackpool County Court held that Mrs Ince was withholding money from her husband, she was found to be in contempt of court. Under the Married Women's Property Act 1964, he still had a right to half of all the money derived from the housekeeping allowance. And at this time, there was no fixed period for Lillian's imprisonment, and so she could have remained in prison indefinitely. The Married Women's Association Executive Committee decided to mobilise its resources to assist her. Ada Summerskill raised the issue in the House of Lords, emphasising Lillian's diabetes and poor health. According to the Married Women's Association accounts, Lillian was an ordinary housewife who married shortly before the Depression in the 1920s and had five children. Her husband, Tom Ince, was a minor, though was often unemployed or absent without pay as a result of sickness. He belonged to clubs, gambled and spent all the money that came into his hands. Mrs Ince told the Married Women's Association that she never saw her husband's paycheck, except for when his earnings were low in the 1920s. And so she saved all she could. She walked when she might have taken a bus. She shopped in the market instead of the local shops. And she earned money from light domestic work and from selling her crocheted items. Mrs. Ince's children also gave her a proportion of their earnings. And so she saved this money over the course of 20 years, beginning to put some of it into national savings certificates in 1940. 
By 1963, Mr. Ince had retired. Mrs. Ince had almost £2,000 in a building society. She had a quantity of national savings certificates and she'd been able to buy a house from savings in the joint names of her and her husband. Then, even though he was still living with his wife, Mr. Ince took court proceedings against her. He claimed one half of the money in the building society and one half of the national savings certificates as his, on the ground that they were savings from housekeeping money. Mrs. Ince didn't attend the hearing of the case. She was a diabetic and said she didn't feel fit to do so. Besides, she didn't think it would be a big deal if she didn't go to court to tell her side of the story. And that's because, in the words of a Married Women's Association report, quote, she felt convinced that no court would take away from her the money she had so laboriously and industriously saved and give it to her husband, who would gamble and spend it. It therefore must have come as a shock when Lillian was taken from her home and put into prison after refusing to comply with the court's order to give her husband £939 from the Building Society account and 1800 of the National Savings Certificates, which were all the certificates she then had left. She, quote, felt it would be quite wrong and some kind of a mistake, the association reported. Local news reports said that Lillian would rather die first and disclose where she'd hidden the money. The Married Women's Association did its best to help her. They persuaded Mrs Ince to disclose the location of the savings and to transfer them to the court. It turned out that she'd given her local vicar a sealed envelope containing all the money, and he claimed not to have known about the contents. She was then released from prison, and the association paid for her case to be appealed. However, despite the Married Women's Association apparently resolving the issues impeding the appeal, the appeal failed. The court decided against Mrs Ince. The 1800 National Savings Certificates and the £939 became the legal property of her husband. In its subsequent newsletter, Married Women's Association members expressed their sentiments about the case. The worst feature of the whole case is that despite the fact that Mrs Ince spent six months in prison as a result of adhering to her principles, her side of the story has never been heard by the court and her claim that almost the whole of her savings came from her own earnings and what she saved from money given to her by her children has never been given any consideration. The Married Women's Association wasn't blind to the law's impotence, even after legislative reform had been achieved. Instead of providing Lillian's with protection, the Married Women's Property Act 1964 was used against her by her husband. And without legal representation or even an understanding of the serious consequences of her case, she had limited chance to defend herself. The Married Women's Association was convinced that it could have prevented her incarceration and potentially her loss of savings too, had Mrs. Ince sought their help earlier. But members had intervened when it was, as they put it, five minutes after midnight. Lillian's misfortune didn't end with her failed appeal. Married Women's Association member Elizabeth Ambridge visited her in October 1965 at home with her husband. Mr. Ince had been giving his wife half of his sick benefit, 
while Mrs. Ince said she would bequeath her money to strangers who had helped her in her time of need. The matter seemed settled. Yet, only a month later, it was reported that Mrs. Ince had written to the Married Women's Association seeking assistance. Her husband had left her, and she was concerned he would sell the matrimonial home. By April 1966, though the Married Women's Association had been helping her pursue proceedings to assert her legal right in the home, Mrs. Ince reportedly was giving up and letting Mr. Ince have it. After approximately 40 years of marriage, five children, and years of careful saving, Mrs. Ince had served time in prison, lost her savings, been deserted by her husband, and finally lost her home. Telling Lily Ince's story is important when exploring the Married Women's Association's relationship with law. The Married Women's Property Act 1964 led to more radical discussions of automatic equal division of property between husband and wife. In 1985, the Law Commission produced a working paper centred on dramatically extending the principle of equal division in the 1964 Act by proposing a rule whereby any money transferred by either spouse would immediately belong jointly to husband and wife. Although this rule was never implemented, the paper triggered a broader conversation around financial equality between spouses at this time, and this was directly facilitated by the 1964 Act. These developments all form an important, albeit unrecognised, part of the historical context surrounding current principles of financial provision and divorce. Today, substantive equality underpins the court's approach to asset redistribution. And while the Married Women's Property Act 1964 isn't directly responsible for this model, it was notably the first legislative reform that recognised the need for economic equality in marriage. But the association also knew that the 1964 Act wasn't good enough. We need something more than just monetary gain. We need equal status and with it equal responsibilities. It's notable that the Married Women's Association relied heavily on the private member's bill procedure, a procedure associated with piecemeal incremental reform. The reason this is notable is because, as Edith Summerskill explained, Private members' bills were actually members' only option when their campaigns were ignored in government. Successive governments, fearful of jeopardising the male vote, lack the moral courage to tackle legal disabilities which stem from custom and prejudice. Consequently, these are dealt with in a, a piecemeal fashion by private members' legislation. The noble and learned lord complained at this being piecemeal legislation. I invite him to examine over the last few years the legislation which seeks to remedy injustices suffered by women, and he will find that it has been done in precisely the same way by private members' legislation. This approach shows how feminists like Summerskill and the Married Women's Association could be strategic. They knew that the Married Women's Property Act 1964 did not give effect to their objective of equal partnership in marriage, but at least it was a stepping stone towards it. Ben Summerskill, grandson of Edith, told me she did have a practical view of law reform. 
although she was very single-minded as a campaigner, mm. she was also completely sensible enough to realise, again, I've always taken this view myself, if you don't get something through Parliament, you can be right as often as you like, but you're not actually changing things for millions of other people. And I think there were probably some small compromises she made along the way on things like equal pay that she will have made because she thought the most important thing was to get the bill on the statute book and then the bill can always be improved um, rather than taking the absolutely purist view that, you know, unless we get absolutely everything we want three weeks on Friday, um, we'd rather have nothing at all. And that is a view that, you know, perhaps is taken rather too often by people who don't have enough skin in the game. If the Married Women's Association had waited for a comprehensive and perfect reform of the law, they'd likely find that it wouldn't have happened. After all, they had to contend with so many opponents who believed strongly that it was, in fact, men who needed laws protection, not women. And this is something we'll explore further in the next episode of Quiet Revolutionaries. Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson, Produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare and Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives and all of the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Hale, is out now.